When somebody's path leads them to the perfect position where their expertise and experience collide with the mission they are passionate about, the magical results can create change and impact an entire community. A textbook example is Elsa Holkeen, Executive Director of the Denver Preschool Program. You'll hear how Elsa's path culminated in her leading this incredible organization that creates a launching point for all families in Denver for life-changing early childhood education on this episode of Making Our World Better. Welcome to the Making Our World Better podcast, where you will find motivation and encouragement through lively conversations with inspirational people who every day are making our world a better place. Now, here's your host, Jay Clark. Welcome to the podcast. I am Jay Clark, and I am excited to share a conversation with Elsa Olkeen, President and CEO of the Denver Preschool Program, an organization that is now serving as a national model for advancing early childhood education. Elsa grew up in a small town in Chihuahua, Mexico, and immigrated to the United States with her family when she was 17. She learned English while attending high school and college in Denver, where she worked as an intern in the nonprofit sector. A fun fact is that her first job at age 17 was as a janitor in downtown Denver, and she supervised a team of 45 because they needed a bilingual manager. That's awesome. That internship eventually led her to the Women's Foundation of Colorado and then to Rose Community Foundation, where she served as the Senior Program Officer for Child and Family Development for 21 years. That's where I was lucky enough to first cross paths with Elsa. She played an instrumental role in the creation of Early Milestones Colorado, the Latino Community Foundation of Colorado, the Denver Opportunity Youth Initiative, Colorado's Office of Early Childhood, Borealis Philanthropy, and the Skills to Compete Coalition. A former member and co-chair of the Early Childhood Leadership Commission, Elsa currently serves on the board of Tools of the Mind and the Preschool Policy Leadership Committee. She earned a master's in public administration from CU Denver and a BS in finance from Metro State University of Denver. Her pride and joy are her husband, her two daughters, three stepsons and four grown children. Elsa, thanks so much for being here on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. This is wonderful. Well, let's start off simple and just tell how me how you would describe the Denver Preschool Program to somebody that doesn't know anything about it. Yes. The Denver Preschool Program is a unique and a very exciting model that uh, we created, the taxpayers of Denver created and approved in 2006. And it started as a, um, a sales tax to help families uh, in Denver have the ability to provide at least one year of preschool education before children started the kindergarten. Awesome. So that was in 2006. Um, and then we got, uh, we go to the ballot every 10 years when we got reauthorized in um, 2014. And you will say 2006 to 2014 is not 10 years, but we usually go to the ballot a couple of years early, just in case we don't get reauthorized. So we have to go back by 2026. The investment that the taxpayers of Denver made is a tax of 15 cents, one five on every $100 purchase. And that provides preschool for almost 5,000 children. That is 60% of all the four-year-olds. 60%, fantastic. 60%, we have, uh, we're a national model, as you mentioned. We have one of the highest rates of enrollment in the country. And so 
here we are, you know, uh, several years later, we have almost 16, we have served 65,000 children. And that is, you know, an opportunity that we all want for our children because we want them to be ready for school. We want them to be ready for life. So it's a tremendous investment by the taxpayers of them. But the unique thing is that we're a 501c3. We live outside of government. We have our own board. We report to city council and the mayor. But this is a public-private partner partnership model that across the country was extremely innovative in 2004, talking about it, and it's been a wonderful success. Well, I remember this coming up, you know, in the early 2000s, and it was so great when it finally got the traction and was was approved, because like you say, it is such an awesome investment. You know, tell me about some of the short-term and long-term impacts when these kids can access the early childhood education in the preschool. Oh, absolutely. So this is what we know. We have um, we have the research at the local level and at the national level that investments into early childhood education, including preschool, of course, is an investment not just in the child, but also on the parents of that right. child. So this is a multi-generation because what we know, and I'm concerned with the parents and then I'll go to the child, what we know we particularly learned um, the hard way during the pandemic is that um, access to childcare services was critical if we yeah. want to have essential workers in the workplace. Right. We know that without them having a place where they can take their children, um, and I just take the children, but where the children are getting high quality education mm-hmm. was the peace of mind and the, the help that they needed to get back. We're still struggling to say, how do we provide um, enough resources to the parents? Because the economy cannot function without us right. having a very healthy early education, um, childcare, preschool services. And so we know that, um, and we know this is the best thing for the economic investment. But what we also know is that if children start ready for, to learn at school, they are going to not only benefit personally, they are more likely to graduate from high school, more likely to attend college, more likely to be reading at grade level by, by third grade, which we know is a critical indicator not to do it, yeah. less likely to repeat a grade, less likely to need additional um, uh, education because they are falling behind, And um, over the lifetime, what we know from national studies is that they are going to be adding um, tremendous um, return on investment for the money that we invest in. So that for that 15 cents and $100, we can transform uh, a child's life and the parents' opportunities that they can give them children. Yeah, I mean, you're really changing the whole trajectory of a family that's going to ripple across generations. It does. It does. It does. And, and, and let me just say, Jay, because I, and this is pretty exciting. This is the reason why I'm here. Um, because it is it is not what we do with the Denver Preschool Program. I think a lot of people don't understand that um, early education is not free. And right. K-12 education is free. And up until uh, just a couple of years ago, um, 
kindergarten in Colorado was free only for a half day, which right. we thought was not sufficient. So with Governor Polis and his tremendous efforts, we were able to, for the first time, have free full-day kindergarten. So it, we are, we're still at a nascent stage. We still have a long yeah. way to catch up. What people don't understand is that early education is not free to parents. So um, for preschooling them, the cost is just over $12,000 per year. I mean, that's a lot of money for that's, anybody, especially. And then when you start digging into, you know, working the you know wage workers and everything else coming up with that on top of you know rent food you, you're making hard choices are we going to eat or are we going to send our kid to, to preschool and yes and, and it's no longer remember in this country 70 percent of all um households with two parents 70 percent of the households have two parents in the workforce right. so so what happens when you cannot afford to change your child to preschool education is parents are figuring out where they can leave them for the time. Yeah. They're taking shifts where one is working night, one is working day, because you have to figure out how to take care. This is not the best environment for a no. child. And so for families, right. Or for family. This is a struggle that they have to contemplate. So you know, as a country, we need to make different decisions about mm-hmm. how we help parents when they have right. a baby, when they do these things. But in Denver, we have the Denver Preschool Program. And so what I what I was being really excited is that we don't come in and provide a little bit of support or a little bit of help. We understand what parents are going through. So last year, our average tuition support per month, our average was $850 per month, wow. year around. And for the very high need families, our um, tuition support was $1,100 per month. And then we started um, a scholarship program because we know that some of our very high need families sometimes qualify for other government programs. But there are those families that are the, what we call the cliff effect or the working family that don't qualify for any services, but they mm-hmm. don't have enough money to still pay right. for the need. So now on top of the tuition support, we give them a scholarship to make sure that their child can attend. This is the reason why we are a national model because yeah. we come in and help them at the level that they need to be helped. That's awesome. So kind of explain a little bit how your funding works. So this this tax mm-hmm. money comes in mm-hmm. and then how do you guys distribute it and where's yeah. where's it going? Yes, yes, yes. And thank you because that gives me the opportunity for you to talk about this market. Uh-huh. And so the early childhood um, community and we're, uh, well, one of our primary principles and one of our principles is about making sure that we're honoring that family's choice for care. And as you know, when we're talking about very young children, families may have different ideas as to where they yeah. want to so, right. so for us, once we work as hard on the supply as we work on the demand. So we work as hard to go and recruit parents and get them to enroll and get them to have all the resources, navigate where to find a place as we do on the supply. And we have a very imperfect market that we're still developing. But um, we we have providers that are part of um, public schools. So we have, you know, preschools that are part of public schools. Mm -hmm. But we also have preschools that are part 
of um, what we call our community sites. And our community sites are nonprofit organizations, for-profit childcare providers. We also have religiously affiliated providers, and we also have home-based providers. Mm. The, the most important element of that is that they have to be quality. So we invest a lot to make sure that we get those providers to quality. When the Denver Preschool Program started um, 16 years ago, there were only 40, 40 providers that were wow. as quality providers. That was not nearly enough for the capacity yeah. that we had. It's like, right. how do you start with 40 providers? Right. The schools, we only had 40. Today, we have 270 quality providers. Uh-huh. So this is what we do. And how do we do it? We we come in, we have a rating system in early childhood that is mm-hmm. one to five stars. We use that rating system as an indicator in a way to help the providers. Mm-hmm. We pick up the providers as soon as they open. So if they as soon as they open, they are a level one. And then we grow them to a level two, a level three, a level four, and a level five. We grow them with what we call quality improvement dollars. That means we give them coaching, training, curriculum. Wow. Uh, um, we send their staff for certificate programs, for school, for licensing, for all the things that they need. Then we grow them to a level three or four or five. And then we maintain them at that level so that we can have that supply ready for the demand. And the way that it works is parents um, call us or go on our website. They, uh, we have a calculator because we do it based on income. Mm-hmm. We have a calculator. But um, the one thing that they have to understand is we're a universal program. So everybody's going to get support. You may get a different level of support depending on your income, but everybody in Denver will qualify. That's awesome. Everybody. Uh, Everybody. So you can go in, you can have two tools. One is a calculator so that it can help you figure out, so how much money could I potentially do? And the second, which we're really glad we have, and we're very happy that we have, um, that we started last year at this high level, um, was that we have a navigation system where you can come in and say, I'm looking for a provider that is um, close to my work or it's close to my home. I needed to be a nonprofit, home-based, big center, small center, bilingual, um, special needs, you know, what do you need? And it has all these indicators. And now we have a tool that can give you not just the centers that are based on your criteria, but which ones have available spots. And then you can say, this is the center that I'm going to go. You apply to the center because they have to make sure they have spots. Mm -hmm. You apply to us for the funding and you're done. After that happens, we are working directly with the provider. We're sending the money to the provider. We are ensuring that the provider is quality. The parent doesn't have to worry about whether my provider got paid or didn't get paid. We handle all the payments that are going to be there. So it is is as easy as we can make it to ensure that the parents can focus on what they need to do. And that is being incredible parents and supporters for their children. Well, what's awesome about that is to me is you're 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 hitting both sides. You're making it a very personalized experience for the parents, but at the same time elevating the service provider. So it's this great service. One of the challenges for you has to be, and I would think especially with the lower income families, is making people aware that this opportunity is available. 
Yes, absolutely. Making sure that they know that uh, making and because we're universal, I, I we spend as much time talking to NPR as we spend time talking to uh, promotoras that we have. Uh, so we have um, outreach efforts with immigrant women that are in the community talking on a with to parents and saying this is the opportunity in the language that the parents speak and understand how this system works, especially for immigrant families and how the system works and how you do the process and everything else. But we also, um, we're just coming back after the pandemic, but before the pandemic, we used to have over a hundred community events that we, where we had a booth, we were talking to the parents, we were talking to the providers. We often partner with um, city council members and we do it by city council district where we oh, can awesome. so we can be part of other activities and everything else. Our biggest event is um, once a year we have an all day um, opening at the Denver Zoo where we bring um, providers that can be enrolling kids as they come in. So we have about 15 providers that come in. We provide food, we provide all kinds of goodies. The family can come with their preschool child talk to the providers, enroll with us, maybe enroll with one of the providers, and then they can attend the zoo for free. So they wow. can, a whole family can go to the zoo That's and awesome. we can stay and have a fabulous fun day. We get um, over a thousand people that come wow. that enrollment day because um, we do it. So we take the responsibility to say it is our duty to go and find the parents at the place where they are. So venues like yours, um, you know, having the opportunity to be talking to parents and we talk to Facebook sites, uh, we do Facebook live uh, orientations with the Vietnamese community, we attend events at different places. So we know that we have to be multifaceted in order to find parents and what we do. What do you see are are some of the challenges moving forward with early education? I mean, we we know how critical it is, but there's got to be some challenges, right? Workforce. Oh, yes. Access, you know, your funding. Are you going to get reapproved? I mean, all those. What are some of the big challenges that y'all are are dealing with daily? Yeah, so I I feel like um I feel like we're living in the land of opportunity and challenges. The both at the same time, uh, <laughs> at the same time. That's a great yeah, uh, at the same time, and, and so one of the challenges that we have you mentioned is the workforce because uh-huh. like the rest of all the other industries, um, we're struggling to find uh, qualified staff for the centers and the teachers. Yeah. And because um, I mentioned to you that in order for us to get these children ready for school, in order for us to get the quality that we need, we need to have qualified teachers. So it does require them to get training and certificates and all that. So, I mean, they have to invest a little bit more in order to be ready mm-hmm. to be in preschool, which makes it more challenging to say right. we afford to pay. And we know that um, teachers as a whole are underpaid. And teachers in early childhood are even more uh, mm-hmm. underpaid than um, K-12 teachers. So we have some work to do at that level. Um, we also, um, and in the land of opportunity, um, I will tell you that we are very, very excited that at the state level, 
we finally have um, state universal preschool. So for many, many years, Denver was the only community that had funding for parents. Um, Since then, there have been uh, five other communities that have a local tax where they can provide some level of support. We're still the largest level of support. But now the state has universal preschool. A couple of years ago, we passed um, a tax on um, cigarettes and liquid nicotine, Prop EE, that generated money for universal preschool. It was um, the... um, it was uh, the opportunity for us to create a new department of early childhood. Um, that is my my volunteer activities that I serve on the uh, committee to get that department up and running and universal preschool at the state level. We've been working a lot with the state to help uh, provide all the learnings and resources and everything that we have learned over the years. So they have a model that they can look at at the local level and do all the support. They are going to get, and here's the opportunity. They are going to be funding uh, 15, uh, 15 hours of preschool for four-year-olds. across. Awesome. So most of our families, like um, almost 90% of our families need either a full day of preschool or extended right. day. But in Denver, we will have the opportunity to come and supplement what the state is providing and still cover the families, which means... That uh, when we got reauthorized the last time, Jay, we were um, smart enough to get reauthorized to not just serve four-year-olds, but to also serve three-year-olds. Yeah. So for the first time, we've been on a pilot level. We have expanded for two years to start serving three-year-olds as well. So for so us, awesome. it's so awesome because for our very high-need families, we can say, we are going to give you two years of preschool high-quality preschool, plus free full-day kindergarten mm. before your child starts first grade. And for us, you know, this is a game-changer. This is how you yeah. shift the family from this is where they are. You just shift them to yeah. a higher level because right. you have a three-year investment on that child. When they hit first grade, kids. they are ready to roll. They are ready to go. They are ready to go. And yeah. what they and what I don't think, um, I don't think a lot of us, unless we have have young children and have gone through the education system is that early education is not just about academics and the basics and learning it's about um the ability to be ready to school it's about Mm -hmm. knowing the social emotional skills about um being in a group uh following directions uh, doing some ability to understand how the system works Mm -hmm. and now uh, now we understand that's even more critical Right. Knowing your colors and your numbers is the readiness, the social, emotional convenience yeah. for school, which we know that we don't take care of that when they are young. Then we have the issues that oh. schools are dealing with, which is children. Just, that, those those grow. My daughter's a fourth grade teacher, and she says you can spot the kids that have been through early childhood education a mile away. They're yes. just they're just more developed, more ahead, more prepared. You're a you're a, a veteran. Um, nonprofit leader, you've been working in this space for a while. What is it that really drew you to make such a difference in early childhood education? Yes. Um, yeah, so, so I have been able to, um, I came to the philanthropic world from working in nonprofit organizations. And I had this, um, 
I had the opportunity to um, really understand uh, with my degree. I have a degree in finance, but I also um, I am a bit of a social entrepreneur. <laughs> and I one of the organizations that I started early in my career was um, the Business Center for Women at Vicasa. And so it was a place where I was teaching women how to start their own businesses. And so I've been very interested in the um, financing side mm-hmm. of the nonprofit sector. Yeah. And um, and so when I, uh, it's what, how I ended up in philanthropy because it, I was in nonprofits and I wanted to know what was the other side doing? How would they right. decide who they were going to fund and how they were going to fund? Um, I also, and I'm also a bit of a social entrepreneur, I often find myself being the first. And like, oh, the first Latina, the first immigrant, the first this. So I um, I entered the philanthropic sector, which was very white, yeah. a lot of white older men. Yep. And uh, and I was very curious about what I happened. Then at that time, they were um, I had been working with families, and then I started working with youth, and I kept going down the the path to figuring out where do we create the most effective return on investment? What, what happened? What happened that this child is not ready school? What happened in middle school? What happened in, in uh, first grade? What happened in third grade? What happened in early childhood? And at that time, we were just learning about brain development of babies. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I had the opportunity to be at those early meetings of learning the potential that children are born with and the responsibility and the opportunity that we had to maximize that readiness because they are born ready to learn. It is to us to say, what are we providing? How we do it? So I learned that. And then at that time, there was a report that came out uh, from the Federal Reserve Bank, which is, of course, the foremost economic authority Mm -hmm. on uh, return on investment. Right. It was the, the, um, president of the Federal Reserve Bank that um, put out a paper saying that the best return on investment that he had ever seen was an investment in early childhood. Wow. Because at that time, we were estimating that for every dollar invested in early childhood, our return was for, uh, $8. Wow. <laughs> Today, we know that it is $14 because Ooh. it's over the, the stock market at a time. I know. Over the lifetime. <laughs> Now we know it's multi-generational. We know that it's not just the child that goes through that, it's the children of that children. And it totally got my attention. I thought, this is what we need to be investing. And then by then, I was in philanthropy, helping people, helping that philanthropic community say, where should we invest the money? So I spend my time um, with my committee, with our board, with our um, state, people at the foundation convincing mm-hmm. them that, this was the place where we yeah. could make the biggest, biggest difference. Um, <clears throat> so much so, Jay, this is my social entrepreneur side, that we did a study about um, the field of early childhood, which was nascent. I know I partnered with the Color Children's Campaign. <clears throat> it was literally a spreadsheet and um, a PowerPoint um, slides. It wasn't even it, that we would go and talk about this is how many children, this is why it's important, this is what we should right. do. And what we quickly figure out was that while this was an amazing return on investment, it wasn't well funded. 
that we needed to co- that the parents couldn't afford it. Right. It wasn't funded that we didn't understand. We actually incubated the planning process at Rose Community Foundation while my dear friend and mentor, um, Anna Jo Haynes, that we were looking at uh, something that we were calling the children's sale tax. And we went to the voters in um, 2000. That's what you remember a little yep. bit. And it failed. Yep. We went to the voters for a second time in 2002, and it failed. And we finally passed that tax in 2004. And that's the Denver Prisco program. That's why we became, that's how awesome. this happened. This is where we are. So I've been at this place for a very long time because I think the results. I know what works. I know what transformation happens. Um, I yes, I grew up in Mexico, and I grew up with a family of teachers. Um, most of my my aunts are teachers, and so I saw education firsthand. I know what happens when you have access. I'm an example of what happens when yep. you have access to education. Yeah, yeah. I came to this country when I was 17, and I had just graduated from high school. And um, I thought, I can't go to college. I don't speak English. So I put myself back in high school and went to high to North High School another year. And I transferred myself out of um, English ESL classes. That's what they were called at that time. Mm-hmm. After one semester, and I thought, I'm going to conquer English. And I took an accounting class with an English-Spanish dictionary. And then I took <laughs> American history and I took out, because of course I had learned history, but that was in Mexico. Right. And I can learn, you know, all these other things. And I put myself through that process. But I attended preschool in Mexico because I come from a family of teachers. So I was one of the first kids that was able to attend preschool. It set me up for education, set me yeah. up for success. So it was not a surprise that I found myself to be able to master math. And it was not a surprise that even if I didn't speak the language and I was just learning that I was confident enough to say, I can handle a degree in finance. And I did it. Now, I had to do it at Metro and it took me 10 years. And Metro has been an amazing organization, Metro Metro State University, Metropolitan State University now. And I had to do it um, by paying myself and doing all the things I have to do. But it gave me the confidence and the ability that I could master these things. So I seen it firsthand. I see what our children have done. And at the Denver Preschool uh, Program, we take um, our commitment to um, the taxpayers very seriously. So we have a um, we have three evaluations that we do. One evaluation is we follow the children that have been in our program since the very beginning. Our first cohort is starting college. Oh, wow. We have we have this evaluation that follows them over the years. We have the second largest data uh, in the country around early childhood. Wow. Behind Head Start. And Head Start, as you know, has been the ultimate of what mm-hmm. we have done. So we, we have the results to be able to say this is what happens long-term. This is why we know they graduate from high school. Yeah. The second that we have is that we do a short-term evaluation where we see what children started and what children ended um, on the year that they are with us. Now it's going to be two years, which I can't wait to see yeah. how the results are going to be. 
And then uh, we have a process evaluation. And that is we evaluate ourselves constantly to say, are we doing the best possible process? Are we making it as easier as can be for parents? Are we as available to the providers as we can? Are we doing the best um, that we can with the taxpayers' money? So this is serious business. And, yeah. and the investment for, on children is so critical that we feel this is what we have to do. So is, is that's how I ended up here, because I know this works. It's so great when I see leaders, especially strong female leaders who are, you know, they're on a path and end up right in the place where they need to be to make a giant difference. And you're a great example of that. And speaking of that, if you were to tell younger nonprofit leader, what are some lessons that have really benefited you throughout your career? I think that the first lesson that I would say, and it's one of my biggest pleasures, I had breakfast with one of them, is uh, find a mentor. Find yourself a mentor that can help you. So I just was meeting with one of the women, and I make it up um, very intentional that I primarily work with women of color, uh, primarily Latinas, to say, let me help you figure this out. Um, Find a mentor, find several mentors. Um, enter these, enter these, um, enter this field with curiosity. Um, with don't lose, don't lose the ability to be inquisitive, curious, and everything else. Um, um, I, I saw that you were interviewing Lauren Rabinowitz the other day, and I, I love her interview. And um, and I've been practicing this. This has been hard day. I really from laughing because I'm one of that. Um, Nine News um, Leader of the Year finalists. Salute. Yeah, yeah. So they've been asking me this question about leadership, and I had to really reflect on what has been, what have I learned, and what has been my biggest, um, my biggest um, success. I think has been in helping other people be successful, and. And I love the fact that I can open doors for other people to enter, for women to enter philanthropy, yeah. for people of color to enter philanthropy. One of my other big, big volunteer projects, and and I am um, I'm, I'm the chair this year, is the Latino Community Foundation, which you should also interview because they do amazing work. So the Latino Community Foundation is one of my other um, projects that I started and incubated arose for 10 years. They are on their own now. They're doing amazing work. And they um they are on their way to um they have given away 13 million dollars over wow. years. They are on their way to um have a 20 million dollar endowment. I'm coming in wow. as the chair to help them close that endowment goal. At $20 million, Jay, they are going to be the same size as the Women's Foundation. Wow, that, is, that has to be amazingly satisfying for you. It is great. And their lead is Carlos Martinez. Um, and Carlos is a ton of fun. And he can tell you all about the $35 million that, that they just secured from, wow. um, from the state to fund um, BIPOC and GLBT communities with some of the um, ARPA money that, um, that that the state received and to be able to make sure that they get their fair share. It is an amazing success, but that that is what I do is opening that door. So uh, there are people in the nonprofit sector that will open the door. 
if you ask. And when they're doing the night news interview, they ask me, what's the one thing that you would do different? I said, if I will do that different, is I will be bold. I am now bold. I now say, yeah, what do I have to lose? I can say what I want to say and what, what it's going to be. But I will have asked. I will have said, this is what I want. This is what I need. Um, it will have been easier. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm one of my mentors, and I, I've been lucky to have a bunch of mentors. Um, and I were writing a book. We've been working on a book together. And I wrote a story about uh, for my daughters about feeling butterflies in their stomach. And I said, oh, my God. You know, there were so many times where I will go and it's like, oh, we yeah. feel it. I said, and I was telling them when that happened, don't get scared. It means that you're doing something that is new. You're doing something that you're growing. And so when you're feeling that, then you're being bold. You're stepping up. You're stepping at that level. I, I, I probably make it very, I'm simplifying it for this time, but maybe somebody like Brene Brown will say this is being vulnerable. But yeah. what it is, it's like, go for it. You know, learn how to feel that. Learn how That's to feel vulnerable, nice. how to feel those butterflies that we all feel. And we like, oh, this is you. Got to take a deep breath and I'm going to have to do this. So it's, um, that's what will make you successful in the non-profit and in the for, in the business community, which is yeah. very similar in the long run. That's um, I love it as a girl dad. That is such great advice for for young women. And I'll I'll change gears here a little bit as we wind oh. down. And I always love to ask, what's something that you will read, listen to, or watch today? Read. Um, uh, I think what I'm going to be reading. Um, it's a new book. It's right here because I have to look at it. It's called, um, that uh, one of our staff members gave me, it's called Traction. And the new book is about, um, we just approved a new strategic plan for, um, for DPP that is totally centered on equity. And the one thing that I need to figure out is, we need to figure out, is what are the next internal infrastructures and systems that we need to have in place. So I'm going to venture down this road to learn that um, and see what uh, what is available, um, what is ready to to be seen. Um, but um, yeah, so I'm starting that book today. There you go, lifelong learners. That's a great example. Can you tell me who's been? Who would you point out has been a a really great role model for you throughout your career? It's probably a tough question. <laughs> I had a lot of them, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think the one that um, that I still work really, I still think about every time there is a big success or a small success is my dad, and um, and my dad, um, you know, my dad died uh, ten years ago. But every every day that something happens, and I think is whether it's good or hard, I think about him and say, "Are you proud? Are you happy?" And I think about my dad and my mom because. Both of them made the sacrifice of leaving their lives in their communities oh. to provide a better future for their children. And that is, you know, they brought their whole life with seven kids to another country in three suitcases. And that is an enormous thing. But my dad only had a second grade education. Mm. And um, he became in Mexico 
a construction foreman. And what I remember about him, he was super smart. What I remember about him is that um, uh, at the end of his um, career, he they would give him um, the blueprints and a bank account and say, this is what we need done. And they will come back six months later, nine months later to see this anonymous building. Wow. And there were you know periods of time where he had as many as 350 people working for him. Wow. And working in some of these sites in Mexico, he was, um, his nickname was El Maestro, which is the teacher. Uh-huh. Not only did he have to give them jobs, he started as a carpenter. Not only did he have to give them jobs, in many cases, because they were in remote locations or going to different places, but always he was providing housing and food. Oh, wow. That were working for him. So, and he was teaching them um, how, you know, to do the work that needed to be done. So that was always his nickname, El Maestro. And I always remember that because people saw him as their teacher, not their boss. Wow. uh, So I aspire to do that. I aspire to say, wow, how did you do this? How did you have the confidence to read a blueprint? And he's the one who helped me with um, um, algebra classes and physics classes when I was in high school in Mexico. Second grade. So, wow. um, you know, so I, I believe in people's potential and I believe that people are enormously smart regardless of their education. And he taught me that. He taught me how to appreciate everybody. That's um, fantastic. Yes, I was very lucky. So my last one, if yeah. anybody wants to learn more about DPP, uh, all the resources you make available, yeah. volunteer you know, learn about how they, they can become involved, become work at a, at a provider. Where do they find you? Yes. So we have, of course, we have a couple of verses. And most important, Jay, if anybody knows of a family in Denver, now I stay white, that has a four-year-old or a three-year-old or a two-year-old that is thinking about one day enrolling for preschool because they will. So you have somebody that you know, somebody in your family, somebody there. When I told you about the cost, everybody needs help. So they can go to our website, which is dpp.org, Denver Preschool Program, dpp.org, and they'll find all the resources that they need. Or they can call us at 303-595-4377. And we have people with um, that can answer in multiple languages. So we'll have access to whatever language they need. Fabulous. And we can navigate them through the enrollment process, through um, the our site. We will fill out their application for them and make it as easy as can be. But send us those parents. We need them. And if you're interested in being a teacher, please call us. We want to help you figure this out. That's so awesome. Well, Elsa, you are a gift. This has been such a pleasure. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed Elsa's passion for service as much as I did. This podcast was brought to you by JC Charity Services. If you're interested in how I might be able to bolster your efforts or help your team achieve its goals, I'd love to have a conversation with you. You can find me at makingourworldbetter.com. To learn more about the Denver Preschool Program and Universal Pre-K, 
visit dpp.org. Check the show notes for links. And if you enjoyed this podcast, we'd be grateful if you'd share it with a friend. Until next time, I hope you're inspired to find a way to make our world better. 